In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of a cow jumping over the moon. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs, and two little kittens, and a pair of mittens, and a little toy house, and a young mouse. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio stars we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. And a comb, and a brush, and a quiet old lady who was whispering, Hush! Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon. As the sun goes down, the fingers of darkness begin their creeping over your shoulders, around your legs, through your hair. And as the ink of the night settles in, most people do too, tucked into our homes, curled under our covers, welcoming the letdown, the slowdown of rest. But the night, slow though it seems, isn't always quiet or restful. Night has a life of its own, a living, breathing energy that pulses when our heads are turned and our eyes are closed. Today on ReSound, listening to the night. Stay tuned. Try to imagine, in New York City, sudden and complete darkness. No streetlights, no store lights, no nothing. I'm talking about can't see your hand in front of your face dark. On the night of July 13, 1977, a complete blackout spread through all five boroughs of New York. And right before the chaos and mayhem of that night began, two young DJs, Disco Wiz and Grandmaster Casanova Fly, were spinning records in a DJ duel on a busy corner in the Bronx. Then everything went dark, and some say hip-hop was born. If I was a kid in the 50s, I'd have been Chuck Berry. You know what I'm saying? If I was in the 30s or 40, I'd have been, you know, a jazz artist. It's the same energy that every generation, you know, exercises, and it just comes out in different forms. It was just time. What we're going to do right here is go back. It was time for a new... Way back. ...interpretation. Back into time. In 77... Thunderstorms swept over the New York City area on a hot night in July. It didn't have a name. You know, people referred to it. Oh, y'all still doing that hippity-hoppity stuff. Lightning struck several transformers and the city was plunged into darkness. Hip-hop, hippity-hop, hip-to-the-hop. Hip-hop, the hip hop During the blackout of 1965, residents treated the situation with good humor and camaraderie. Okay, hip-hop, you know what I mean? Not so in 1977, a crime wave resulted. Driving up Broadway from just north of New York City's Midtown section through the fabled ghetto areas of Spanish Harlem and Harlem, 
Every other block has a hi-fi store, a liquor store, a sporting goods store that was broken into. I do remember what New York was like in that era, and I remember how chaotic it was. In the Bronx, looters smashed a steel door of an auto showroom and drove off with 50 new cars valued at $250,000. It was like a powder keg, like something like that was on the verge of happening all the time. All it took was something to to push it over the edge. Because again, there was that sense that the citizens of New York, and particularly the Bronx, had been just abandoned. This is Grandmaster Kaz, and yes, I was there during the night of the 1977 New York City blackout and survived. <laughs> okay, so the year of the blackout, hip hop was starting to spread, but um, it was still pretty much a, a Bronx kind of thing. Ladies and gentlemen, when did country music start? When did blues start? When did rock and roll start? You know, things have been happening since the beginning of time that eventually developed into hip-hop. How do you define retroactively what was the first hip-hop event? And once again, my friend, the funky beat has no end. We about to take it on down to the AM for you and your friend. Cause the sound you hear is kind of tough on your ear. Coming at you so loud and clear, so you have no fear. It was a hot summer day and um, my DJ partner Disco Wiz and I had been challenged to a battle, to a DJ battle by this other group. My name is Joe Schloss. I'm a professor at City University of New York, and I research and practice hip-hop culture. My name is Lloyd Altan, and I am the Bronx Borough Historian. So we decided to take our equipment out into the park. We used to hang out, play basketball in every day, so that's where the battle was going to take place. I think one of the things that people forget was that not only was Bronx in, in very dire economic circumstances, but that it happened r rather quickly. We all went out, we set up side by side. The Bronx was physically destroyed by the Cross Bronx Expressway, and then there was economic devastation that went along with that. I just remember them having a very, very good professional sound system, and us having our thrown together, you know, in pieces, set. You know, there's this oft-told tale about landlords burning down their own buildings for insurance money. Well, certainly, uh, there was a whole period of, of arson. So people were living with the constant threat of their own buildings burning down. You had neighborhoods that had lost something like 46% of the population. You know, um, gangs arose to police the area when there weren't police there and to look out for themselves because there was a clear sense that nobody cared about you. And there were blocks after block after block of rubble. And beyond that, uh, what was on the horizon were uh, buildings that were empty and boarded up. And these were, were apartment houses that had been in densely populated neighborhoods. And really, it looked like Berlin right after the bombings in World War II. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe, you know what I mean? Because now that we older, I can look back and say, wow, we got through some pretty rough times, <laughs> you know? But rough. if you were born into rough times, then it's just times. Um, that is, uh, you know, 
part of the background to the story of what would happen in uh, these neighborhoods where uh, you had a lot of people who were living in poverty who would take advantage of that situation in 1977 where they did not take advantage of that situation in the earlier blackout. So on this particular day, we all went out, we set up side by side, you know, with our equipment and commenced the battle. I was doing this little combo that I used to do, and one song was a song by DC LaRue, and I would cut it up with this other break beat. Ah, love, 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 and I was killing them. Now remember that the hype of everybody, you know, being really excited. And then the record just started slowing down. You know what I mean? Just, you know, you know how turntable cuts off and then just that kind of situation. So quite naturally, we thought it was us. We thought we had drained too much power and um, we shorted out, you know, the electricity. So we're frantic, we're looking around, we're checking buttons, we're checking switches, we're seeing what's up, because this is death in a battle if your system counts out on you. But after a while, everything around us started getting dark. I mean, windows, the apartment buildings around us were all dark. It kind of came over everybody at the same time, like, oh, blackout. And the stores started to close. Like the local bodegas on each corner, we would hear the gate slamming down. Shoom, shoom. It's like they knew what was happening. They knew what was going on. They like, we, we closing up now. New Yorkers' reactions were varied. Some threw parties, some went walking, and many seemed bemused. Some stayed up in the bars and clubs, and some went out to help. But many took advantage of the sudden chaos. The park was right around the corner from the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, which is like shopping area all the way up and down. Stores, electronic stores, toy stores, furniture stores, pet stores, I mean everything. Here in the corner of 135th Street and Broadway, I'm amazed to find that right before my eyes a Singer's sewing machine store is systematically being looted by a crowd of about 40 or 50 people. I saw people taking stuff that people had stolen, you know what I mean? Like, they couldn't get in the store, so they wait for people to come out the store with something and then just grab it from them. It was chaos that night. And it was exciting afterwards. But while it was going on, it was scary. Without shame, no, no apparent shame at all. They're just walking right into the front of the store and carrying out yards and yards of material, yarn, yards of crepe. Silks, cottons, drapery material. DJ equipment, turntables. They wanted to become DJs. They wanted to, you know what I mean? And equipment cost. So that's why you could count the amount of DJs that there were. But after the blackout, all this this new wealth that I like to call it, you know what I mean, was founded by people and, and they just, you know, opportunities sprang from that. And you can see the differences before the blackout and after.
We didn't have those music programs. All those were cut out. When we were kids, you know, we had them. But those intermediate years, it's like, we didn't have none of that anymore. We had to keep our music alive. We had to keep, you know, exercising this 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 need, this this inner need from our soul to, to, to you know, experience music. So the question is, did they go and seal turntables and things like that so that they could actually become those disc jockeys? I think it's true. I cannot rule out the possibility. But I think it's also important to, to, to keep in mind that basically hip-hop history is an oral history at this point. But I cannot say definitively that that actually did happen. And that it's all mythology in some sense. The true stories as well as the false stories. I even, like I said, I even got a new mixer. I, I went right to the place where I bought my first set of DJ equipment. I spent money in here. And I went and, bought, and, I, and I got me a mixer out of there. That was Lights Out by Delaney Hall, producer emeritus at the Third Coast Festival. Delaney's now in Texas, working on a project that will map Austin's diverse music scene. During the day, zoos are bustling. Kids running around, parents snapping pictures, vendors selling hot dogs, everyone watching as the animals go about their business. At night, though, when the people leave and the animals get a bit of privacy, naturally, it quiets down. A bit. As it turns out, though, in this darkness, there are some conversations that are just beginning. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how some of the best conversations take place in the dark? Between friends, lovers, even babies in their cots. But there's a place in Dublin where you can eavesdrop on very different types of conversations. You just have to know what to listen for. And you just have to... Shh. A lot of people they know the zoo and it's working hours, you know, from eight to five. You know, even keepers, you know, they, they work with these animals the whole day and then they go home and then they forget there's another 16 hours, right? Leo Ostevegel is the director of Dublin Zoo. He sometimes goes for a walk in the zoo at night and eavesdrops on the conversations that happen in those 16 hours. 
Some of them are subtle, some loud, and others are the stuff of nightmares. So tell me about wolves and uh, what they say at night time. They live in family groups of up to 12 animals, howling together and it, it establishes cohesion. So that's the main purpose. And of course they also uh, make a statement sometimes. We are here, this is our space. Territory is so important because it provides you with food. You don't want another pack of wolves infringing your space and taking away what you think belongs to you, right? You defend that, so you, you make a statement. I often hear them at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning before sunrise. It's very impressive, you know, it goes on for a while. They all participate, the whole orchestra. Occasionally they call like this because you know, during a hunt one of the wolves wandered off and sort of got lost, broke away from the pack, so it's helping the pack reunite because they split up when they hunt, right? There's magic in this sign. I can just see a tiny little bit of moonshine. Yeah, they make a, a real effort. <laughs> We're walking past our beautiful flock of breeding Chilean flamingos. So these guys are having conversations too, aren't they? Yeah. It's any animal that is social, they, they communicate and sort out, you know, the best position for to stand, they squabble over food, they compete for nesting space, and, and they focalise a lot. So during the courtship, would you have um, two males competing? Oh, there's competition, absolutely. But then they bond and they stick together and often those bonds last for many many years. Flamingos get very old. There are flamingos recorded in zoos that are close to 50 years old. Wow. Extraordinary, isn't it? When you listen carefully they sound a bit like ducks, right? And that makes a lot of sense because they actually related to ducks and geese. You hear that? <coughs> Come on, we're going to see that. See what's going on here. It's the alarm call, yeah? the bark. That's a sneeze. Um, you know, they're alarmed. They don't know what's going on. They might go into the water, which is safer. Often they're on these islands, 
they sleep on these islands. Do they sleep all through the night? Yeah, they spend a lot of time together there and they sleep. They cuddle but they, up? But they're fair, yeah, they always touch. They always, little clusters of them, feel comfortable, they feel safe. Go on, bar back again. No, not quite the right. Look at that. Magic? Okay, we're gonna have a look. We're gonna have a look at the alleys. But I predict they will be inside. Like a lot of wild animals, elephants are wakeful during the night. Their conversation is ongoing, but it's not always as vocal as with other animals. Elephants spend 70% of their lives, when they're awake, that is, uh, looking for food. And we've mimicked up here. I'll show you in a minute. Wow. Hello, guys. I always talk to them, so they know. Hello. Hello. They're behind a steel fence. Good evening. But as the door closes behind us, five enormous shadows move quietly towards us. Hello. They're going to sniff us now. They're going to sniff you. They want to know who you are. Okay. They want to know what your smell is like. Okay. Three long trunks have just appeared through the bars. Mm -hmm. And they're pulling jeans and searching pockets. Is that amazing or what? It is. <laughs> Look at this. Three trunks smelling my shoes. So all of this touching is how they communicate, right? Yeah. Just this incredible, endless exploring of the trunks, all this movement. They're continuously touching each other. When they sleep, and that's, you know, they have little periods of sleeping of a couple of hours, they're all connected to each other. There's, there's always a little bit of skin contact. And there's always one elephant that's sort of awake and keeps an eye right. on guard, right? And then, you know, after a couple of hours, they get up and, um, and they start wandering around again. They're far more nocturnal than we believe. They're very night active. Right. So they've little, little bit of sleep and then they walk around and they feed and then they sleep again and they feed. Sounds like a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Having a good sniff. Oops. Dragging my whoops, trying to drag my foot into the. So right now we're feeding the elephants some bananas. Oh. All right, all right. Oh. This is pretty good. Watch this. But not everybody is having a conversation. Watch this. At night time, some animals just do what we do. They're fast asleep. They sleep. These are spider monkeys, and they've got an incredible, beautiful, prehensile uh, tail. Almost like a fifth arm. Look. Isn't that amazing? Fork of a tree, you know, branches really comfortable, sleeps on its forearm. One little leg goes all the way up and the tail is anchored, wrapped around the other bit of branch. Comfort. Looks yeah. really relaxed. They get very old too. There are spider monkeys that are 
40, 50 years old. Look at that tail. Mm. Extraordinary. Mm. They're very express. Have very expressive faces. You live on site in the zoo. What's it like listening to all these conversations? It becomes part of you, you know. It's, it's not different from having a, a dog or a cat at home, you know. <laughs> Except here there are elephants and sea lions and, you know, and you get to know them. You get to know that, that whole other life they live. very interesting to see how animals sleep, like what we just did with the spider monkeys, and how they anchor their little bodies with the tail of them and make sure they don't fall out of a tree, because that would be an embarrassment for a monkey. So, you know, all that knowledge, all that observing, right, it's great. Conversations in the Dark was produced by Colette Kinsella for RTE Radio Ireland. And here's a postscript worth crowing about. After putting this story together, Colette, the producer, and Leo, the zoo director, fell in love. Now they're living together in the zoo. Colette posts a photo each day on her blog documenting a year in the life of the zoo. To find a link, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Whether you're nocturnal or diurnal, we would love to hear your musings. Write to us at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org or connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Animals aren't the only ones up at night. There are plenty of people who are nocturnal as well, and certain places are magnets for these night owls. Clubs, for instance, theaters, casinos, and near one Las Vegas casino, a 24-hour pawn shop. Producer Mary Beth Kirshner spent the night there. Man, this is good. It's two in the morning, and Charles Ingalls is having a snack. Chips and salsa after eight hours on the job help him stay awake. He's got five more hours to go. Eat hot, 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 hot sauce. I'll just uh, try to keep myself busy and alert till I uh, have to help a customer. Charles Ingalls is working the all-night shift at the Gold and Silver Pawn Shop in Las Vegas, and he says he's lucky to get a break. Hi, how are you? He typically has 50 or so customers a night at his walk-up window on Las Vegas Boulevard. Many of them regulars. How much did you need tonight, Paula? A bunch. A bunch. <laughs> this next customer gives Charles a flirty smile through the bulletproof glass between them. What's a bunch, Paula? Two, three hundred. Uh, you know I can't go three hundred on that. 
Just as much as you can. Okay. 16 grams. Paula's got a ring on every finger, and one by one, she tugs them off as Charles weighs the gold. He says she's been here many times before with lots of different boyfriends who buy her jewelry in the shop by day. And then when the relationship ends, she comes back to pawn the rings at night. She's cute. She has a southern accent. A lot of guys go for that. Paula's wearing a Las Vegas Community College baseball cap over her blonde little Dutch girl haircut. Hey, hey Paula! What is a good old southern girl doing here in the middle of the night? It will cost you money to know. <laughs> Out of the darkness of the night, Charles says he never knows who or what will walk up to his window. I mean, I've handled $20,000 watches. I've been out in the parking lot where people tried to pawn their vipers. Uh, it's just different every night. How much of a loan did you need? $30. Uh, here, let me look at it. Okay. Charles Ingalls' walk-up window looks like the drive-up window of a bank, which it is of sorts. Bigger items, like this guitar, are slid into the shop after hours via a large metal box. Here, just lay it flat. I'm just going to lower it down so I can look at it. Charles stands right up against the bulletproof glass, speaking louder than normal to be heard through a tiny speaker. You know what, bud? I, I, I'd go about 20 bucks on a loan on that. So if I, the window weren't between them, he and his customer would be nose-to-nose -nose as they finalize their deal. Well, we're stuck, so you got me. All right, let me have the case. Most of his clients are stuck, with few, if any, options. His walk-up window operates almost like an ATM for the needy, most without bank accounts. I, 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 all I'm trying to do is get, like, 10 bucks so I can get a little gas and cigarettes until I get my check tomorrow. Sure. I have a microwave. Unfortunately, we don't take home appliances. Sorry. And of course, being Vegas, people come in need of fast cash for the obvious. Are you winning? Nothing. I'm winning, I don't got me here. <laughs> Gold and Silver Pawn Shop is on South Las Vegas Boulevard, several miles from the glitz of the fancy hotels on the Strip, with a Vegas vibe all its own. For miles in each direction, every block has a seedy hotel or a down-and-out wedding chapel. This pawn shop is one in a long stretch of Charles had a good word for it. It's, it's, it's uh, gritty. Yeah, gritty businesses. Some of his customers have typical Las Vegas sob stories, and some are more desperate than others. Like one Christmas Eve, when a young couple from the Midwest, moving across country, showed up at his all-night window. They packed up the station wagon with everything they owned, and on their way out, they stopped here in Las Vegas. Then he checked into the hotel, and before going up to his room, he stopped and, you know, put a dollar in the machine, and, and he won some money. Well, you know, four hours later, he was not only spent all his money, but all the money he'd had with him, which is pretty much his entire life savings. He'd lost $7,000. And he came to my night window, and he was, you know, very upset. Charles says the guy started meticulously unloading what few possessions he had out of his station wagon placing them on the sidewalk outside his window. Household items, mostly farm tools, standing by each and asking if Charles could take them, which he couldn't, they were too old. Uh, he got so, so upset, and, you know, but I did motion the wife over, and then I asked if they had anything with him. She said no. And I, so I, I broke the uh, unwritten rule of pawnbrokers, and I gave her $20, and I told her to go directly to the gas station, fill up the car with gas, and leave. But surprisingly, most of his customers aren't gamblers or tourists. 
It's locals needing $10, $15, or even less. It's $5 total is what he's getting. $5 total. Two? Yeah. There's just not enough there for me to do anything else. It's now 3 a.m., and this customer is back for the second time tonight. He's pawning some CDs. On his first visit, he didn't have proper identification, so now he's back with his wife, who's in her house coat and slippers, with her ID for the $5. Probably needs it more than likely for food, maybe gas, pack of cigarettes. From what I understand, he's completely broke tonight. I've been here before. You have? Yeah. How far is five bucks going to get you tonight? Not too far, man. That's what I'm saying. You but I, I mean, it, it'll help me. So I'm not worried. You would think them CDs cost more than five. I got a car, man. You want to buy it? No, I don't. <laughs> Shit. They're not all in poverty, but they're either middle class or, or people like on fixed incomes. And, it, you know, it's, it's tough. And the only time you've ever reached into your pocket is that one time? For the record, yes. Because that's an ultimate no-no. Pawnbrokers don't ever, ever admit to giving people money. That's just not something you do. It's like an unwritten rule. We don't give money to anybody. We loan money. We don't give money to anybody. Gold Silver Pawn Shop, may I help you? Charles Ingalls became a pawnbroker six years ago when he was laid off by one of the airlines where he was working in customer service. I understand. I understand. He still has that friendly skies way with people, but genuinely so. It's it's tough, dude. Maybe it's Charles, or maybe it's the -the round-the-clock nature of Las Vegas with lots of services that go 24 hours. But his overnight shift is popular. A few weeks back, Charles says he had people waiting in line, five deep, all night long. It was like they, they all knew each other. You know, they were gabbing away and, you know, where were you? You know, it's like they were all on the same tour together. And it's funny because they could be standing there and exchange information, but if they ran into each other into a supermarket, you know, three hours later, they wouldn't even talk to each other. So why is that? I don't know. They feel some sort of camaraderie if they're standing in line at a pawn shop. And, you know, it kind of makes it, you know, oh, good. I'm not the only person that's out at 2 in the morning that needs 10 or 15 or 100 or whatever it is. You know. The deal they get is right. this. You need to, I'm sorry, you need $100 on this? If the loan is $100, the customer pays 10% every 30 days for up to 120 days. Yeah, it's for my family. They're sitting out here going to get some groceries. Okay. If the customer doesn't pick up the item, the pawn shop keeps the goods. Let me get my memory stick out of there. Sure. This guy is leaving his digital camera worth about $600. A safe $100 loan for Charles if this customer doesn't come back invaluable enough for a fast hundred for a customer who needs to put food on the table. Good luck. Appreciate it. And some people are closer to the edge than others. There was the night that an elderly woman approached the window, needing to pay a power bill. Not an unusual scenario at first. She was going through the stuff and, you know, her jewelry box, and she had a lot of costume jewelry, nothing I could really loan her money on. Then she asked me um, if I took, you know, gold teeth, you know, dental filings. I said, yeah. Then she, you know, she asked to borrow a pair of pliers, and you know, I was like, for a minute there, I was like, uh, I thought maybe her car was broken or something. She had to jump start it. You know, I wanted to know why she needed the pair of pliers for, and uh, she was going to pull out her gold teeth and pawn them. And I told her no, <laughs> I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to give her a pair of pliers so she could pull out. And I told her if she went somewhere and pulled her teeth out and came back, I wasn't going to loan her any money on that either. This pawn shop thrives on the business of senior citizens. You know, a majority of them that, that thought that 
when they got time to retire that the Social Security would, would, would be enough. People like this elderly woman. 72527, her date of birth. She has uh, 32. Charles is counting the number of visits she's made since they started using computers at the shop 10 years ago. Almost 225 transactions. And she has four or five pieces of jewelry that she pawns all the time. A herringbone necklace, a few small diamond rings, which she brings back over and over and over again. And she pawns those right after the 15th, if she doesn't have enough to make it to the first. And then after the first, if she doesn't have enough to make it to the 15th. This woman will always be back. In fact, Charles says 80% of customers do return to collect their items, but a small percentage don't, and their valuables fill this place for sale. A case full of wedding bands, a wall lined with guitars, racks heaped with power tools, each with a story. These shelves are moaning with sad stories. You know, in, in this business, you'll hear every, every, every sob story you can imagine. You'll hear it. I can't find my ID, bro. You can't pick up the receiver without ID. This guy came to get his receiver out of pawn, and the best he could offer for identification was this. What's this? That's a subpoena. I, I, I haul for Rebel Oil Company. I hit and killed six people, and I go to court over it in July of this year, man. It's a subpoena and man. There are so many stories, and there are so many people that a lot of times that I, I just, I wish for ignorance that I could just do my job and not remember any of them. So I could, you know, go to bed, you know, because ultimately I have to go to sleep. Why are you guys here tonight? Well, we need gas and um, stuff for me to get to work. And so what'd you bring? A PlayStation. PlayStation 2. Is this your little girl? It's my daughter. And what's your name? Andrea. And is that your PlayStation 2? Yeah. It's midnight, and this woman is here because she was fired from her job cleaning offices. She says she has a long history of turning to this pawn shop when times are tough. To be honest, I'm a recovering addict, and I brought a lot of stuff to this guy. Her little girl listens like she's heard this story many times before. Instead of being out there on the street selling or selling myself, I would, I would get stuff from other people, ste actually steal, you know, to do what I had to do. Thankfully, she says, this pawn shop is one resource she's always been able to turn to. Charles says he can sympathize. You really want to call your mom up on Sunday night and ask for $10? Or, I don't know anybody that plays their Sony PlayStation 2 24 hours a day. You know, I mean, she pawn that for $10, get some smokes, put some gas in the car, and you don't have to answer to anybody but yourself. Charles says this woman probably just wants to show she can take care of herself. Like many of the people who come to this shop. We're kind of like the guardians of the edge. I mean, where would they go if they didn't go here? 24-Hour Pawn was produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. It originally aired on All Things Considered. Now here's a fun fact. That very same pawn shop, just a hole in the wall back when Mary Beth produced her story, is now the subject of a reality TV series called Pawn Stars on the History Channel. But just saying, radio had it first. Thank you. Can you make a move, please? 
While a 24-hour pawn shop can be a flurry of activity, a museum, by contrast, even during the day, seems pretty sleepy. Guards like sentries, shuffling feet, hushed tones, all the stuff of reverence and import. At night, though, who can say what goes on? Plenty of movie makers have imagined fantastic scenarios of inanimate objects coming to life once the doors are locked. But really, isn't it all just art on the walls and drowsy security guards? Maybe. But then again, maybe not. Our next piece takes us on a nighttime field trip to the National Gallery in London. Go ahead, Michael. Can you give us a call in the control room, please? My name is Joe. I've been a security Walter for 26 years. My name is Atmaram Kual. I've worked here for 28 years. I work as a control room security officer. We start at 8 o'clock in the evening. At summertime it's not too bad, but the winter is rather darkish. Our job is to look around the ceilings and uh, make sure that there's no leaks. And most of the time make sure that the building is secure. We are many, never silent, even in darkness, light sighs from our surfaces like sap from wounded trees. We demand your eyes and meet them with a multiplicity of our own. We are never alone. My name is Tracy Chevalier. I'm the author of five novels, the best known being Girl with a Pearl Earring, which is a novel about a Vermeer painting We're standing in a dark room with just a little light from the edge. And you can more or less make out the paintings, what they are. It does feel like they're all um, asleep. These paintings are asleep and (laughs) they've been here all day and everybody's been looking at them and they're exhausted. They don't want to tell their stories anymore so it's dark and they're quiet and they're all sleeping just the way we do. And now we're going to wake them up. I'm Marina Warner, and um, I'm a writer, principally, and I also teach at the University of Essex. One of the oldest ideas, probably, in mythology about art is that it comes to life. The, the, the best-known story is Ovid's Pygmalion. Pygmalion decides, it's a misogynist story. Pygmalion decides that all women are wanting, they're, they're, they lack the qualities that he most desires, so he creates, as a sculptor, a statue and he loves his statue so much because she's exactly what he wants I mean this is not really a very nice story and um, and he begins to make love to the statue and then by a marvelous piece of poetry in Ovid's Metamorphoses he feels the flesh turn warm under his fingers and she steps down from her pedestal so this idea that statues have this um, you know really potent uncanny life inside them belongs to, you know, quite a lot of powerful stories that have had many, many different versions and variations written about them. If you drink a painting for long enough, you can breathe it into life. We slip in and out of the landscapes, their swirling impressions of green pathways leading deep into other worlds as we breathe our mythic conversations. A language of starry nights and crucifixions, doorways within doorways, the magic of time travel after midnight, when the gardens breathe shifting skies, the horse gallops free from the frame, and we are no longer a single expression, a moment frozen, but all the hundreds of years that have danced in the moonlight, we echo to each other. 
it's got this quality of silence that is rather different from total silence, and that's what's eerie. Something about the the people who've all gone, the visitors, leaves behind some vibration in the air, but also that the quality of all these paintings changes the actual atmosphere technically so that this is a, a, a living place, not a... It doesn't turn dead at all. I wouldn't want to say that this was a kind of sacred feeling, um, but it, it's a kind of nuance of the sacred. There's, there's something close to that. You feel awed and, um, and stirred. You know, it, it's, it's, it's got a sort of musical quality. It touches you wordlessly. Well, nighttime is good because nighttime you can actually sit down and let your mind go and, and let the paintings take you over. You can, you can actually let yourself go into the paintings and sometimes you see things what you don't normally do um, during the daytime because during the daytime you've got the clutter of the people walking, of children whispering and it's a, it's a kind of a buzzing noise in the gallery all, all the time. But at night time it's, it's peace and the gallery is peace and sometimes when there is peace mind plays tricks. When I go down that area, I feel my hair is go up. You know, let's say it's uh, two o'clock, still going in the morning. It's so quiet down there, and suddenly when you hear some noise, you said, "Oh my God, what is it?" You just feel so scary, you know. You want to get out of there as quick as possible. The most areas I like to avoid is the basement area. <laughs> I could hear a ball and chain following me all the time. And I was really scared because I don't normally believe in ghosts. But it had me going for a good, a good year. Till once I was walking down there and I found out that it was the Victoria line. It was the workers working on, <laughs> on the lines at night time. It's almost, the sounds are almost like a prison. You hear these doors kind of cracking shut and open and these clunk, clunk, clunk of the feet going down. And it's like the, the paintings have been stuck here and they're imprisoned. And that's the funny thing about these paintings is that they don't escape, you know. They don't escape the frame and they don't escape where they are. They're always going to be here. Even if you move them on a wall, they're really going to stay in the National Gallery unless they're let out for good behavior on to some exhibition, traveling exhibition. Then they'll go off for a little while and then they'll come back. But it's all the same. A wall is a wall, isn't it? We echo to each other. Who suffered most, who sat for longest, who's been restored, who got hidden during the war, who's been painting of the month, turned into a postcard, reprinted and sold a million times, catalogued, downloaded, our faces pressed and contorted. It seemed like flattery once, but in the hushed quiet of our own eternal night, we can't help but resent all this endless watching. We never realize that life is just a rough sketching, but now find we are layers and layers of everyone who ever looked at us. I very much like the idea that what is truly deeply disturbing is the nearly animate, and it's the absence of soul, it's the absence of spirit, 
that kind of inertia and that really makes one feel clammy and one wants to supply it. And I'm interested in playing and make-believe because I think that a lot of playing and make-believe that children do actually attempts to supply this missing animation. They make their dolls play, they move their figures about, you know, with Playmobil or whatever, they, they try and breathe into it. And I think some of our creative urges later in life, which we see expressed in, you know, quite a lot of high art, is also a, a quality of bringing, of refusing this kind of image of death, this image of the inanimate, and bringing things to, to warm life. And it does stave off the fear of death at a very deep level that doesn't have to be conscious. This is not a sort of conscious process. This is an unconscious process of attraction and fear at the same time. Sometimes it reminds me that my time will come sometime and my time is close because <laughs> I'm coming to retirement soon and when you come to retirement it means time to go so sometimes when I'm in front of the altarpieces I says it's time to say your prayers Joe because <laughs> it'll be judgment day someday. <laughs> I think the thing that's so captivating about a museum at night is the the philosophical notion of if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there, do you, does it make a sound? I know it sounds crazy, but if there's nobody here to look at these paintings, do these paintings actually matter? Do they, they do exist, I accept that they exist, but do they, do they matter? And I, I think I've found as a writer um, that my work, my books don't fully exist until the reader reads them. It's like a contract between the reader and the writer and I present something I give something to the reader they read it and between the two of us we make the whole work and I think paintings are the same thing any kind of artwork is the same the painter paints a painting and but what does it matter unless we actually look at it so it's very curious to see it at night like to come in when the, we came in just a minute ago and the lights were all dark and we couldn't see anything and we knew the paintings were there but did they have that uh, do they have that power? And oddly enough, sitting here in the dark when I couldn't see them, it took my eyes a few minutes to adjust. I still felt like they did. It was like they were zinging off the walls. There's like this buzz. You demand that we remain constant. When sound folds itself into empty vaults of air and the last light fades like the dying echo of final footfall, we exhale. Well, in the morning, about five o'clock, it's still kind of like quietish. You can start f hearing the birds outside actually chippering, chippering. Maybe it's their breakfast time, but you're actually going to hear them. And the next minute you get the buzzing noise on the door. And guess what's coming in? The karma is gone. Everything's gone. It's bells ringing, phones ringing, and that's the cleaners the contractors, the people repair the doors. It's like um, there's a load of bees in the air, everything is busy. And, it, and you get feeling that the paintings are getting very busy and they're getting very tired. And they're waiting for me to get here at eight o'clock and give them some free space and freedom. 
Nocturne was produced by Kathy Fitzgerald and Neville Edwards for Antenna International. My name is Shane. I am at Bubble Land doing laundry. My name is Mary. I'm at uh, Bubble Land and um, also doing laundry. I generally stay up till sunrise. I usually go to bed probably way, way earlier than he does. I usually go to bed around like maybe around like two or three. I stay up late because um, it's not the city's not as busy and I don't know get a lot of myself time. I'm Tranika Rex, and I'm here at the Attorney at Law, American Girl, Medicine Woman. And I'm here at the Golden Nugget at midnight. I mean, barbecue. Yeah. It's my birthday for the next yeah. three minutes. Seriously? That's what we're celebrating here. Oh, happy Last birthday. Turn up the music. Yes, turn up the music and bring out my, my sparkler show I ordered. <laughs> it looks like Alaska. Oh, my, my name is Omar. I'm from Mexico City. I'm cook, I make the Guatemala bread at Marcelo's Bakery. Uh, working three guys, now it's two. The old man and me uh, working all night, never close. Never, never, never close. This one is like, like churros, strawberry, uh, piñapo, apple, um, Bavaria cream, sweet cheese. Sweet cheese and strawberry. I like working in the night. Those were some of Chicago's Night Owls, recorded by Resound producer Katie Mingle at the Bubble Land Laundromat, the Golden Nugget, and Markello's Bakery. Now, as Resound comes to an end, we imagine slipping into dawn. The insomniacs are finally falling asleep, the donuts are being made, a few early birds are heading to work, and in New York, garbage men are finishing up their shift. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that a flag was still there. Oh, My name is Andrew Macchio. I've been working with the Department of Sanitation for nearly 23 years. I'm in my 23rd year now. I've always sung behind the truck as I'm working. I have to. It's what gets me through my job. My job isn't glamorous. Uh, it keeps my mind off what I'm dealing with, number one. It keeps my mind off my problems. From when I was a child, I've sung from when I wake up in the morning so I go to bed at night and I sing all day. All somebody has to do is they might say something. They might come out with a cliche or uh, even a phrase, a regular, day, uh, you know, everyday phrase. And then it might trigger off, you know, a song. I've got to be me. What else can I be but what I am? You know, I hope I put a smile on somebody's face as they're walking to the subway, as they're walking to work, take their mind off their problems, get them to sing or even to hum or whistle. And one woman just tapped me on the shoulder, I turned around and, she, and all she had to say was, you put a smile on my face. That makes my day, believe it or not. If I can do this 
for somebody else, I don't despair in the fact that I'm not helping somebody. My name is Lou Santora. I work for the New York City Department of Sanitation. Uh, I have 24 years on a job. This is the route we do every day. We march up and down 65th Street, me and Andrew. Picking up New York City's trash. We like our job. It's a good job. We have a lot of fun working together, me and Andrew. But I am that far away prize. A lot of times in the morning I'll say, come on, Andrew, sing a song. It's a nice thing he does. A lot of people stop and applaud and clap and you know, they say that he's terrific. A guy this morning said, oh, you ought to be singing at Yankee Stadium. I could never pursue a singing career because, believe it or not, I have stage fright. I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. I never liked working in an office. I just didn't like the confinement. Just being out here in the in the outdoors is it's wonderful. You know, even though I'm not breathing such healthy air because I'm behind the truck, I'm behind cars that are stopped right by us. But still, I love being behind the truck. I love the physical work of it. It keeps me going. You meet people. Daring to try to do it or die, I've got to be me. I like being up, especially when it's the morning and it's still a little dark, and gradually it gets lighter and lighter and lighter. The brighter the sky gets, the quicker I am to being done, because I know it's almost quitting time. I've got to be free. I've got to be free. Daring to try to do it all. Singing Sanitation Worker was produced by George Badarki for WFUV News. And now a sad postscript. Andrew Macchio passed away in 2010. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Good night, stars. Good night, air. Good night, noises everywhere. <laughs>